But I'm also happy that there is a guy who is here since the first year who sometimes tells the people in Toronto or the other places that he is with the European Graduate School. And then they report back to me, Zizek said this. Is that an advantage? Yes. Because he is certainly one of our role models here in all his singularity, uh, rebel without a cause, but with a lot of thinking power. Please welcome Slavoj Cicic. You see, this is maybe the difference between the two of us. You are looking for the man behind the book. I'm looking for the book behind the man. I claim behind every man there is a book. And uh, Okay, so uh, since I'm doing in my class every morning a lot of philosophy, I decided this year to do here something a little bit more political, to confront or at least to focus on a very traumatic topic, which for sure brings trouble upon you, uh, anti-Semitism. I mean, I think I am fully qualified to do it because I have the honor of having been proclaimed, and that's the catch, for the same text. So that you cannot say, I'm treating, I'm showing this, for the same text. The same text of mine was attacked in Israel, I think in Jerusalem Post, as the worst anti-Semitic propaganda, and was attacked by Al-Ahram Sunday Supplement as disgusting Zionist propaganda. So I'm on the right way, I think. So let me approach it slowly, systematically. One of the definitions of what Jacques Lacan calls real, le réel, is the point of impossibility within a field of reality. Along the same lines, what for Alain Badiou defines a world, and I think this is crucial when you read him, is not primarily the positive qualities, features of a world, but the way its structure, the structure of a world, relates to its inherent point of impossibility. Sometimes the whole world changes, not because there are some new positive qualities, but because the way this world relates to an impossibility changes. But this classical example, of course, is how classical mathematics dismissed the square root of minus one as an irrelevant externality, as nonsense to be ignored. And incidentally, this is one of the not very glorious moment of Karl Marx. Somebody showed to me the page from his uh, so-called mathematical manuscript where he says square of minus one, it's pure nonsense, and so on and so on. While modern mathematics, as we all know, makes this impossible, the calculable, marking it with the letter small i, so-called imaginary number, and then we know the story, mathematics historically splits, remakes itself by creating constants, constants which occupy these impossible places. So let's be clear, what happens is not that the impossible simply becomes possible. The square of minus one is still an impossible number, you cannot positivize it, but it, the way the system 
whole system of knowledge relates to this point of impossibility changes. Maybe the same holds for capitalism. The capitalist dynamic of perpetual self-revolutionizing relies on the endless postponing of its point of impossibility, the final crisis, the collapse. I mean, the best, uh, the best formula for this is when uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes was asked, but what about, aren't, will your politics work in the long term? He says, in the long term, we are all dead. No, and the, the whole point is to postpone it. Uh, what is for other earlier modes of production a dangerous exception is for capitalism normality. Crisis is in capitalism internalized, taken into account as the point of impossibility which pushes it, the system, to continuous activity. Capitalism is structurally always in a crisis. This is why it is expanding all the time. It can only reproduce itself by way of borrowing from the future. So you see how, you see the parallel I'm making. It's still an impossibility, but it's made internal to the system which changes the entire dynamics. And perhaps, that's my global philosophical hypothesis, one should extend this to the very definition of humanity. Maybe what ultimately distinguishes men from other animals are not some primarily, at the most radical level, some positive features, speech, tool-making, reflexive thinking, whatever, but the rise of a new point of impossibility, designated by Freud and Lacan as the impossible, real, ultimate point of reference of desire, and so on, and so on. There are even very primitive experiments, I was told by some, people who study animal behavior to demonstrate this point. For example, when an ape is presented with an object beyond reach, for example, an attractive sexual partner, it tries to gain access to it, but if it doesn't work, it abandons it and moves to another object. Maybe not such a nice partner, but accessible. While humans persist, transfixed, even if it's a failure, you indefinitely uh, repeat a failure. And this brings me now to, let's make a step further, to a possible simple definition of what is within the Freudian edifice fantasy. Fantasy is an imaginary scenario which precisely tries to provide an insight into this point of impossibility. Let me explain this via a detour through Gilles Deleuze, who often varies a motive, the motive of how, in becoming post-human, we should learn to practice, quote from Deleuze, a perception of the world as it was before man. Before man released, a perception released from the human coordinates. So for the less, those who fully endorse the Nietzschean return of the same should be strong enough to sustain the vision of, as the less puts it, the iridescent chaos of a world before man. Now we should be very careful here. Although the less resorts here openly to Kant's language, talking about the direct access to Dinkan sich, to things the way they are in themselves, 
His point is precisely that one should subtract the opposition between phenomena, the way things appear to us and things in themselves, from its Kantian functioning, where noumena are transcendent, inaccessible things which forever elude our grasp. What Deleuze refers to as things in themselves is, in a way, even more phenomenal than our shared phenomenal reality. It is, let's call it, an impossible phenomenon. The phenomenon that is excluded from our standard reality. The gap that separates us from noumena is thus primarily not epistemological, but practico-ethical or libidinal. There is no true reality behind or beneath phenomena. Noumena are phenomenal things which are too strong, too intensive for our per perceptual apparatus attuned to constituted reality. Imagine, for example, someone being forced to witness a terrifying torture. In a way, the monstrosity of what he or she sees would make this an experience of the nominal impossible real, which would shatter the coordinates of our common reality. In this sense, for example, if we were to discover some films shot in a concentration camp showing the systematic torture, killing, burning of prisoners, in a way we would have seen too much. We would have entered the, some kind of prohibited, forbidden, nominal territory. Point between, if I remember it correctly, between Godard and Claude Lanzmann. Godard said he would have used these shots. Lanzmann, Claude Lanzmann, precisely the author of Shoah, said no. If he were to stumble upon such movies, he would have immediately burned them. This is also what makes it so unbearable to witness the last moments of people who know they are shortly going to die and are in this sense already living death. Again, imagine that we would have discovered among the ruins of the Twin Towers a video camera which somehow survived the crash intact and is full of shots of what went on among the passengers of one of the planes just in those last minutes before they crashed into one of the towers. In all these cases, it is that effectively we would have seen things as it were, as they are in themselves, outside human coordinates, outside our human reality. Uh, incidentally, my fancy is that maybe you, the US authorities have these shots and don't want to show them or whatever. But uh, now, again, my claim is that it is at this level that we should locate the anti-Semitic fantasies. They are precisely providing, of course, within the anti-Semitic ideological space an insight into this impossible otherness. Why? One of the supreme ironies of the history of anti-Semitism is that Jews can stand, of course, within the anti-Semitic space for both poles of an opposition. They are stigmatized as upper class, rich merchants exploiting us, and low class, filthy. They are perceived as too intellectual, you know, just uh, working all the time, reading books, and too earthly, sexual predators, and so on. 
as lazy and workaholics. Sometimes they stand for the stubborn attachment to their particular life form, which prevents them from becoming full citizens of the state they live in. Sometimes they stand for a homeless, uprooted, universal cosmopolitanism, indifferent towards all particular life forms. The focus changes with different historical epochs. In the era of the French Revolution, the Jews were sometimes, for example, by the great partisan of the French Revolution among the German idealists, Fichte, they were condemned as too particularist. The reproach was they continued to stick to their identity, rejecting to become abstract citizens of a state like everyone else. In the late 19th century, with the rise of imperialist patriotism, the accusation was turned around. Jews are no longer perceived as too particular, but on the contrary as too cosmopolitan, rootless, lacking their proper place. The key change in the history of Western antisemitism paradoxically occurred with the political emancipation of the Jews, the granting of civil rights to the Jews, which followed the French Revolution. In the early modernity, the pressure on the Jews was to convert to Christianity. And the problem was, can one trust them? You know, from Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice, and so on, it's always this problem. First, let's force them to convert to Christianity, and then, but did they really become Christians, or do they secretly continue to practice their rituals? However, in the later 19th century, a shift occurs which culminates in the Nazi antisemitism. Conversion is now out of the question, meaningless. That's, did you notice this difference? How all of a sudden, after the French Revolution, it's no longer the question of converting the Jews. Hitler never was thinking in these terms, let's convert them. Why? For the Nazis, the guilt of the Jews is directly rooted in their biological constitution. One does not have to prove that they are guilty. They are guilty already by being Jews. Why? The key is provided, I think, by the sudden rise in the Western ideological imaginary of the figure of the wandering eternal Jew in the age of Romanticism. That is to say, precisely when in real life, with the explosion of capitalism, features attributed to Jews expanded into the whole of society. Since commodity exchange became hegemonic. It was thus at the very moment when Jews were deprived of their specific properties, which made it easy to distinguish them from the rest of the population, and when the Jewish question was resolved at the political level by the formal emancipation of the Jews, that is to say, by granting Jews the same rights as to all other normal Christian citizens, that their curse was inscribed into their very being. They were no longer ridiculous misers and so on, but demoniac heroes of eternal damnation, haunted by an unspecified, unspeakable guilt, condemned to wander around, longing to find redemption in death. So it was precisely when the specific figure of the Jew disappeared that the absolute Jew emerged. And this transformation conditioned the shift of antisemitism from theology to race. Their damnation was their race. They were not guilty for what they did, 
exploit the Christian, murder the children, rape their women, or ultimately betray and murder Jesus Christ, but for what they were. And, of course, it is this shift which laid the foundations for the Holocaust, for the physical annihilation of the Jews as the only appropriate final solution of their so-called problem. Insofar as Jews were specified by a series of their properties, the goal was to convert them, to turn them into Christians. But from the moment that Jewishness began to concern their very being, only annihilation can solve the so-called Jewish question. However, the true mystery of anti-Semitism is why is it such a constant? Why does it persist through all historical mutations? Things are a little bit as with what Marx says about Homer. The true mystery to explain uh, is not the origins, how Homer's poetry is rooted in early Greek society, but why does it persist to exert its artistic charm till today, long after the social conditions that gave birth to it disappeared? It is easy to date to determine the original moment of European anti-Semitism. It all started, I claim, not in the ancient Rome, but in the 11th, 12th century Europe, which was awakening from the inertia of the so-called Dark Ages and experienced a fast growth of market exchange and the role of money. At that precise point, the Jew emerged as the enemy, the usurper, the parasitic intruder who disturbs the harmonious social edifice. Incidentally, theologically, this moment is also the moment of what Jacques Legoff called the birth of the purgatorium. The idea that the choice is not only between heaven and hell. There has to be a third mediating place where one can, as it were, make a deal, pay for one's sins, if they are not too great, with a determined amount of repentance, money, economy again. So where are we today? I claim we are witnessing the last version of anti-Semitism, which, as I tempted to say as a Hegelian, reached the extreme point of self-relating. That is to say, the privileged role of Jews in the establishment of the sphere of what Kant calls public use of reason hinges on their subtraction from state power. This position of the to use Jacques Rancière's term, part of no part of every organic nation-state community, this, not the abstract universal nature of their monotheism, makes them one of the figures of the immediate embodiment of universality. No wonder then that with the establishment of the Jewish nation-state in 48-49, a new figure of the Jew emerged, a Jew resisting identification with the state of Israel, refusing to accept the state of Israel as his or her true home, a Jew who subtracts himself also from his own state, a Jew who includes the state of Israel among the states towards which he or she insists on maintaining a distance. And it is this uncanny Jew who is the object of what I think one cannot but designate as, I warn you, this uh, expression brought me a lot of trouble, as Zionist anti-Semitism. The foreign excess disturbing the nation-state 
community. These Jews, the Jews of the Jews themselves, worthy successors of Spinoza, are today the only Jews who continue to insist on the public use of reason. Again, the idea came to me when I, for this, when I was with my friend who was also here a couple of times, Udi Aloni. He's a little bit crazy like me, but basically a good guy. So I was once in Israel debating uh, one of his films, and then some people in the hall addressed me, typically, not him, he is a Jew, me, claiming, how could you be duped by this guy? Don't you see that he just wants to exploit you? He's just after your money, fame, and so on and so on. So I told them, ah, I got your point. You are telling me he is a dirty Jew or what, basically, no? And then I noticed how, how uh, Zionists attack those Jews who do not fully identify with their nation state. They use exactly the same apparatus as it was used in the great epoch of the late 19th century anti-Semitism. You cannot trust them. They appear to be one of us, but they are not really one of us rooted in our community. They are too free-floating and so on and so on. So, the thesis of Bernard-Henri Lévy, one of the people whom I mentioned, you know, when people ask me, it is well known the time for death penalty, no? And people ask me, how can you be for death penalty? Let's debate it. I said, okay, okay. But first, a couple of people has to be shot. Then let's debate the abolition. And okay, this guy is among them, no? Uh, in his Left in Dark Times, Bernard-Henri Lévy makes one of these pathetic proclamations that the anti-Semitism of the 21st century will be progressive or none. That is to say that today, anti-Semitism is the main new form of the emergence of whatever remained of the new transfiguration of the left. This, of course, implicitly at least refers to another of our best friends, to Jean-Claude Milner's thesis on what he calls the title of one of his books, The Criminal Tendencies of Democratic Europe. Uh, the thesis is that Progressive Europe stands for the universal fluidification, the erasure of all limits. And Jews, with their fidelity to their way of life, grounded in their law and tradition, stand for the ultimate obstacle to this fluidification. But my counter question, is the logic of antisemitism not the exact opposite? Does the anti-Semitic perspective not perceive Jews precisely as agents of global fluidification, of the erasure of all particular identities? Therein resides the irony of Milner's argumentation. It comes, I claim, dangerously close to the Zionist anti-Semitism, since what it effectively attacks, this universal rootlessness, fluidification, is precisely the other side of the Jewish identity itself. That is to say, what Milner attacks as the anti-Semitic core of democratic Europe is grounded precisely in the greatest, all honor goes to them, Jewish contribution to European identity. Rootless Jews were the first and most radical European universalists. This fact also enables us to solve another enigma, which was always weird, a weird fact for me. How can it be that 
the United States Christian fundamentalists, who are, we can say, or should be, by their very nature, anti-Semitic. My God, the whole world is falling apart if they are not anti-Semitic. How can they now, as you probably know, passionately support the Zionist policy of the state of Israel? I claim there is only one solution to this enigma. The state of Israel itself is becoming anti-Semitic, in the sense, of course, only of Zionist anti-Semitism. That is to say, it is not that the US fundamentalists have changed. It is that Zionism itself, in its hatred of the Jews, who do not fully identify with the politics of the state of Israel, paradoxically became, in this formal sense, anti-Semitic. That is to say, is constructing the figure of the Jew who doubts the Zionist project along the anti-Semitic lines. The standard Zionist argument, again, against the critic of the politics of the state of Israel is that, of course, like every other state, the state of Israel can and should be judged and eventually criticized, but that, that's the usual proviso, isn't it that the critics of Israel often misuse the justified critique of Israeli policy for anti-Semitic purposes. Uh, I claim that when the unconditional Christian fundamentalist supporters of the Israeli politics reject the leftist critiques of the Israeli politics, is thus their implicit line of argumentation not best rendered by a wonderful caricature, I really admire it, published in July 2008 in the Viennese daily newspaper, Die Presse. It shows two stocky, like caricature-like, Nazi-looking Austrians. One of them has in his hands a newspaper and comments to his friend. Here you can see again how a totally justified anti-Semitism is misused for a cheap critique of Israel. That's how they function. Okay, so why? What's the logic behind of this? Why this ambiguous renaissance of anti-Semitism even in the guise of Zionist anti-Semitism? Here, please allow me a little bit of a theory now. I claim that in our allegedly post-ideological era, ideology functions more and more in a fetishist mode as opposed to the traditional symptomal mode. In the symptomal mode, the ideological lie which structures our perception of reality is threatened by symptoms as returns of the repress, cracks in the fabric of the ideological lie. While fetish is effectively a kind of envers, inversion of the symptom. That is to say, symptom is the exception which disturbs the, the surface of the false appearance of a lie. The point at which the repressed other scene intrudes, while fetish is the embodiment of the lie which enables us to sustain the unbearable truth. What do I mean by this? Let me take a case of a death of a beloved person. If my reaction is a symptomal one, I repress this death. I try not to think about it. I throw myself in, uh, in, in, in activity, in traveling, in other uh, love uh, liaisons, but the repressed traumas 
trauma returns in symptoms. Whatever I do, I'm somehow reminded of it. I cannot really avoid it. Like I already mentioned this in my class, like that, I like it. Totally ridiculous joke, you know, of an adolescent who is traumatized by sexuality, so he tries to avoid it and escapes into mathematics. But whatever he does there, it's that. Like, all of a sudden, he has a task, how much energy is uh, released when the two bodies hit, hit each other? Or how much, uh, how much do you need to feel such a tube of volume and so on? And you cannot escape it. Okay. But... Uh, 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 in the case of a fetish, on the contrary, I rationally fully accept the death of a beloved person. And yet I cling to the fetish, to some feature that embodies for me the disavowal of this death. In this sense, a fetish can play a very constructive role of allowing us to cope with the harsh reality. Fetishists are not dreamers lost in their private world. They are very realist. They are able to accept the way things are in this brutal, realistic, cynical way, since they have a fetish to which they can cling in order to cancel the full, to suspend the full impact of reality. Here is a story I often repeat, I know of a case that I know of a husband whose young, beautiful wife died of breast cancer. He survived her death without big problems. He was able to talk about her painful dying to his friends without stress. His friends wondered how this was possible. Did he really love her at all? Was he secretly even glad that she died? Then they got the clue. While talking about her, he always held a hamster, his dead wife's favorite pet object, gently playing with it. This hamster was his fetish, a living disavowal of her death, enabling him to rationally accept that she is dead while suspending what Levi-Strauss called efficacité symbolique, the symbolic efficiency of this fact. The proof, a year after his wife's death, the hamster also died, and the effect of this second death was devastating. The widowed husband immediately suffered a total break breakdown, had to be hospitalized after repeated suicide attempts. In this precise sense, money is also for Marx a fetish. I pretend to be a rational utilitarian subject, well aware how things truly stand, but I embody my disavowed belief in the money fetish. So when we are bombarded by claims that in our post-ideological cynical era, nobody believes in the proclaimed ideals, or when we encounter a person who claims he is cured of any beliefs, he accepts reality the way it really is. He said usually it's all about pleasure, money, I don't have any illusions. You should always ask the question, okay, but where is your hamster? That is to say, where is the fetish which enables you to pretend to accept reality the way it is? I claim that what I ironically refer to as Western Buddhism, this popularist version of transcendental meditation, oriental spirituality, is such a fetish. It enables you to fully participate in the capitalist game while sustaining the perception that you are not really in it, that you are well aware how worthless the spectacle is. What really matters is the peace of your inner self to which you can always withdraw and so on and so on. Now let me go a couple of steps, make a couple of steps further. Of course, one should note that fetish can function in two opposite ways. 
Either its role remains unconscious, as in the case of the unfortunate husband, who was unaware of the fetish role of the hamster, or you think that fetish is that which really matters, as is the case of the Western Buddhist, unaware that the truth of his existence is the social involvement, which he tends to dismiss as, oh, it's only a social game, and so on and so on. But even more important is to introduce another distinction between two different modes of fetishism. First, we have what I described now, this, let's call it, permissive cynical fetishism. You are cynical, you know how things are, but you cling to your fetish, which allows you to maintain a distance towards reality. It should be opposed to, let's call, call it populist fascist fetishism, where exactly precisely we encounter anti-Semitism. Let me explain this difference by opposing, again, two types of ideological mystification. The first type would have been that of false universality. This is the standard critique of ideology. For example, you advocate, you say to your liberal friend, you advocate freedom, equality, and so on, but you are not aware of implicit qualifications which in their very form undermine what you are officially for. For example, your definition of equality secretly privileges rich, male, belonging to a certain race, culture, and so on, and so on. That's the standard critique of ideology. The reproach is false universality. You claim your your value, your, your motive is really universal. You know this classical Marxist point, bourgeois equality is really the equality for those who, for a limited part of society. But there is another mystification, which would be the fetishist properly mystification as it is operative in anti-Semitism. This mystification proceeds in a different way. It concerns the false identification of the antagonism and of the enemy. As we all know, class struggle or another social antagonism is displaced onto the struggle against the Jews, so that the popular rage at being exploited is redirected from capitalist relations as such to the Jewish plot. So, to put it in very naive terms, in the first case, the liberal guy who argues for universal freedom, equality, and so on. You can say when the subject says freedom and equality, he really means only freedom of trade, equality in front of the law, and so on and so on. In the second case, fascist anti-Semitism, you can say when the subject says Jews are the cause of our misery, he really means big capital is the cause of our misery. But the asymmetry is clear. To put it again in naive terms, in the first case, I use these terms with all qualifications, very naively, of course, the good explicit content, freedom, equality, covers up the bad implicit content, class and other privileges and exclusions. We don't reproach a liberal for being for equality. We reproach him that the way he that the way his notion of equality is secretly qualified makes it inconsistent with itself. 
But in the second case, the bad explicit content, anti-Semitism covers up the good implicit content, hatred of exploitation and so on and so on. So you notice, I know this is very naive, but I think there is something to eat. This, we are like in the first case, the good cover explicit has a bad secret behind. Here it's as if the cover is bad, hatred of the Jews and so on, but allegedly there is a good content behind. Like as we usually say, workers have the right to be furious at exploitation. They just direct it at the wrong target. So as we can clearly see, the inner structure of these two mystifications is again that of the couple symptom fetish. The implicit limitations are the symptoms of liberal egalitarianism, singular returns of the repressed truth. While Jew is the fetish of anti-Semitic fascists, as it were, you know how Freud defines the fetish, the last thing you see before you see that woman doesn't have a penis. Here, the Jew would have been the last thing you see before confronting, let's say, class struggle openly. This asymmetry has crucial consequences for the critical process of demystification. Apropos liberal egalitarianism, the interpretive demystification is relatively, relatively easy, since you can directly mobilize the tension between form and content. You argue with a liberal democrat, listen, but don't you see that your notion of equality is really secretly qualified? And to be consequent, your liberal friend, maybe, uh, will have to admit that the content of his ideological premises effectively belies its form. And then he can do one of the two things, either move a little bit towards, he can then, okay, have, he has many options in the space of what Badiou yesterday so nicely defined as this space of paraconsistency and so on. He can say, yes, in principle, in the long term, but we have to be realists. If we do it immediately, we will ruin it. Or he can adopt a pure cynical position. He can say, listen, this is an illusion, equality, but for society to function, we need these illusions, whatever, whatever. But what I'm arguing is that in the case of Jew as the fascist fetish, paradoxically, the interpretive demystification is much more difficult. It, this confirms also the clinical insight, incidentally, that a fetishist, it is almost impossible through interpretation to undermine a fetishist. You can have, not always, some success by interpreting hysterical, neurotic symptoms. Their interpretation can work, not with a fetish. In practical political terms, the conclusion is pretty sad. It is that it is very difficult to enlighten an exploited worker who blames Jews for his misery. You know, explaining to him, like, can't you see how? Jew is the wrong enemy, how your true enemy is the ruling class, and how his anti-Semitism is just a manipulation by the ruling class so that they are free to not attack by the workers, free to, uh, 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 free to exploit them, and so on and so on. And this is even up to a point, as far as I was able to establish, empirically true. While many communists joined Nazis in Germany, in the late 20s and 1930s, and so on, 
the opposite process is very rare. So you see my point. Although it may seem to be much easier to say to an anti-Semitic worker, but can't you see, you are duped, the real enemy is elsewhere, this process is de facto a very difficult one. So again, today's hegemonic ideological scene is split between two modes of fetishism, cynical and fundamentalist. While the fundamentalist directly ignores, or at least mistrusts, argumentation, blindly clinging to his fetish, the cynic pretends to accept argumentation but ignores its symbolic efficiency. In other words, while the fundamentalist not so much believes as directly knows the truth embodied in his fetish, the cynic practices the logic of disavowal. Je sais bien, mais quand même. I know very well, but. With regard to today's situation of ideological struggle, this means that one should at least view with profound suspicion those leftists who argue that the so-called, I will tell you immediately the other side of the story, that the so-called Muslim fundamentalist populist movements are basically ours, emancipatory anti-imperialist movements, and that the fact that they sometimes formulate their program in, if not anti-Semitic, at least anti-European enlightenment, anti-universalist terms, is just a confusion that results from their being caught in the immediacy of their struggle. Like, when they say, that's how some French Arab were telling me, you should always bear in mind that when they attack the Jews, what they really mean is just that they are against Zionist colonialism. I think that uh, we should resist this logic, because once we accept it, we make the first step on the path at the end of which is the quite logical conclusion that since Hitler also really meant capitalists when he spoke of Jews, he should be ultimately our ally in the global anti-imperialist struggle with the Anglo-American empire as the principal enemy. And this line of reasoning is not just a funny rhetorical exercise. Are you, do you know that the Nazis effectively did promote anti-colonialist struggle in Arab country, in India, and so on, and so on? Uh, so what makes the unique figure of Jacques Vergès, the French lawyer, a universal phenomenon is that I claim he embodies precisely this option of solidarity between fascism and anti-colonialism. But as I already said, this is one side of the story, this unconditional rejection of any anti-Semitism. The other side of the story, which is crucial, uh, I'll give you one version of it. Uh, you remember how when in the spring of this year, Taliban took over the Swat Valley in the north of Pakistan, the usual reports of, oh my God, fundamentalists won, crazy, and so on and so on. Uh, of all the media that I know, only, you see how sometimes truth emerges where you wouldn't expect it, only one short article in New York Times, which just then disappeared, nobody, as far as I know, reacted to it, uh, hinted at the other dimension. It was, it made it clear how, I quote New York Times, how a class revolt that exploits profound fissures between a small group of wealthy landlords and their landless tenants is what was going on there. Now I quote 
not the Palestinian terrorist propaganda. I quote New York Times, I'm, quote, in Swat Valley, accounts for those who have fled from Taliban make clear that the Taliban seized control by pushing out about four dozen landlords who held the most power. To do so, the militants organized peasants into armed gangs that become their shock troops. The Taliban's ability to exploit class divisions adds a new dimension to the insurgency and it's raising alarm about the risks to Pakistan, which remains lar largely feudal. And then they quote one uh, advisor to Obama who said, the people of Pakistan are psychologically ready for a revolution. Sunni militancy is taking advantage of deep class divisions that have long festered in Pakistan. The militants, for their part, are promising more than just prescriptions on music and schooling. They are promising justice. End of quote. Now, you notice the ideological bias of this New York Times article. It says that, that it refers to Taliban's ability to exploit class divisions, as if Taliban's true agenda is elsewhere in religious fundamentalism, and they are only taking advantage of the plight of the poor, landless, farmless. To this, one should simply add two things. First, such a distinction between the true agenda and instrumental manipulation is externally imposed on the Taliban, as if the poor, landless farmers themselves do not experience their plight already in what we refer to as fundamentalist religious terms. Second, if by taking advantage of the farmer's suffering, the Taliban are raising alarm about the risks to Pakistan, which remains largely feudal, what prevents liberal Democrats in Pakistan, as well as the United States, to simply take advantage of the same plight and try to help the landless farmer? The sad implication of the fact that this obvious question is not raised in the New York Times article is that the feudal forces in Pakistan are considered the natural ally of liberal democracy. What phenomena like Taliban demonstrate is that Walter Benjamin's old thesis, every rise of fascism bears witness to a failed revolution, not only still holds today, but is perhaps more pertinent than ever. Liberals like to point out similarities between left and right-wing extremisms. Hitler's terror camps imitated Bolshevik terror. The Leninist party is today alive in Al-Qaeda. Yes, but I agree. But what does all this mean? It can also be read as an indication of how fascism, if we accept, that's another question, that this Muslim fundamentalism is fascism. I will immediately approach this problem, that how fascism literally replaces, take the place of the leftist revolution. Its rise is the left's failure, but simultaneously a proof that there was a revolutionary potential, dissatisfaction, which the left was not able to mobilize. And thus, again, the same not hold for today's so-called, by some people, I will immediately return to it, Islamo-fascism is the rise of radical Islamism, not strictly correlative to the disappearance of the secular left in Muslim countries. Today, when Afghanistan is portrayed as the utmost Islamic fundamentalist country, 
who still remembers that 30 years ago, it was a country with a strong secular tradition up to a powerful communist party, which took power there independently of Soviet Union. Soviet Union intervenes only later when the communist power was crumbling. Again, where did this secular radical tradition disappear? It transformed itself, of course, into so-called Islamic fundamentalism. The same goes for United States. I hope you read the wonderful, popular, it's not big theory, book by Thomas Frank called What Happened in Kansas. Kansas is the US homegrown version of Afghanistan. The very state which till 1970s was the bedrock of radical leftist populism. They were always in the first place to fight racism and so on, even politically. No, my God, the greatest figure of the struggle against uh, 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 against slavery, John Brown, is from Kansas, and so on, is today the bedrock of Christian fundamentalism. Again, does this not confirm Benjamin's thesis that every fascism is an index of a failed revolution? Furthermore, is the term Islamofascism, proposed among others by Francis Fukuyama and the above-mentioned friend of mine, Bernard-Henri Lévy, justified? What renders it problematic is not only the religious qualification. I mean, then we should also talk about Christofascism and so on. Fascism itself is enough, I claim. But the very designation of today's fundamentalist so-called Islamic movements as fascist, I think, is, a, is problematic. Why? It is a fact that sometimes we find traces of more or less open anti-Semitism in this movement and states. And there are, I know, historical links between Arab nationalism and European fascism and so on and so on. However, I claim that even if there is anti-Semitism in these countries, it does not play the same structural role. Why not? Do you remember, for the Nazis, the enemy were Jews as nomadic, stateless, rootless people corrupting the community within which they live, so that for them, the state of Israel was a solution, one of them at least. No wonder that before deciding to kill all the Jews, the Nazis played with the idea of giving them a land to form a state, incidentally, not only Madagascar, but Palestine itself. I don't you know, this is one of the dark chapters of the history of Israel, and I was ferociously attacked for it but when I asked the guys, okay, are the facts wrong? They said, no, 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 I just, you know, the usual excuse. I put them in a totally wrong context. Okay, what are the facts? The fact is that in 38, 39, Adolf Eichmann took a train for Palestina because only of some strike, he met representatives of Haganah in Alexandria and they made a deal that if European Jews leave Germany for Palestina, they will be able to take most of their uh, property if they are rich with them on condition that they spend this property for German products. The irony is that many of these products were even arms. The irony is that in 48, many of the Jewish uh, soldiers fighting the Arabs were doing it with German arms. Now, let me be clear here. I don't condemn the Jews here. I would have done the same. They were in a desperate situation. What I'm saying is, let's be very precise that, that uh, what bothered the Nazis 
was the Jew as the rootless, free-floating, and so on. For them, how to put it, the first option even was, let's change them into normal people, nation-state, you know, Madagascar, wherever. With, today, with Arabs, it's exactly the same. And I can tell you, okay, not first-hand, but second-hand from my friends who, not only from my friends who visited, for example, Iran, which is supposed to be the bad guy. They are doing the bomb to kill to bomb Israel and so on. What bothers them is precisely the opposite. It's the state of Israel. They have no problem with what was the horror for the Nazis, free-floating Jews. The proof is, again, I try to be here honest so that you will not accuse me that I'm spreading some secretly anti-Semitic whatever propaganda. My source here is, again, good old liberal pro-Israel New York Times where they had a report on Ahmadinejad confirming that because, for very specific reasons, because as you probably know, Iran recognizes the other two religions of the book also as legitimate. That it's relative, there are no anti-Semitic pogroms. You can live totally normally as a Jew, more or less. But yes, yes, I mean, simply, it's not a problem. So again, you see this radical opposition. It's totally different figure of a Jew which bothers them. So let me go further. We, uh, and the truly provocative thing comes in 10 minutes at the end. Have patience. We all know the anti-communist characterization of Marxism as the Islam of 20th century, secularizing Islam's abstract fanaticism. Jean-Pierre Taguiev, the liberal historian of anti-Semitism, turned this characterization around. Islam is turning out to be, for him, the Marxism of the 21st century, prolonging, after the decline of communism, the Marxist violent anti-capitalism. However, I claim, if we take into account the above-mentioned Benjamin's idea of fascism as occupying the place of a failed revolution, the rational core of such inversions can be easily accepted. However, that is to say, of course, if, if religious fundamentalism will be the Marxism of the 21st century, it simply means a failed revolution and its void will be filled in by religious fundamentalism. But it would have been totally wrong to draw from this the conclusion that the most the left can do is to hope that the crisis will be limited, that capitalism will survive. Uh, this seems to be the conclusion of some of the Zionist leftists. For example, a guy for whom I have otherwise great estimation, Moishe Postone in Chicago. His logic is the following one. Since every crisis which opens up a space for radical left also gives rise to anti-Semitism, it is better for us to support successful capitalism and hope there will be no crisis. Brought to its conclusion, this reasoning implies, and this is the conclusion that I don't, I'm not sure he's ready to say it publicly in Europe, but he, again, my good friend uh, Bernard-André Lévy, said it once, he gave an interview on that PBS public broadcast. He said that ultimately, and that's the secret, I think, ultimately, anti-capitalism today is anti-Semitic. That anti-capitalism is a mask for anti-Semitism today. It is against such reasoning 
that one has to evoke a Lembadius motto, mieux vaut un désastre qu'un désastre. Better a disaster, that is to say, an event termed catastrophe, than désastre, that is to say, to persist in a non-eventual, empty, uh, lifeless life. One has to take the risk of the fidelity to an event, even if eventually the event ends up in an obscure disaster. The best indicator of the lack of trust of today's left into itself is its fear of crisis. Such a left fears for its own comfortable position of a critic fully integrated into the system, ready to risk nothing. Which is why today, more than ever, I claim, Mao Zedong's old motto is pertinent. You remember that wonderful phrase, everything under heaven is in utter chaos, so the situation is excellent. A true leftist takes crisis seriously, without illusions, but as a chance to be fully exploited. So now the concluding problematic points. What this means is that the difference between liberalism and the radical left, although I'm like Alain, but you more and more skeptical if we should still even use the term left, let's call it radical emancipatory politics, is that Although they refer to the same three elements in the political space, liberal democratic center, populist proto-fascist right, radical left, they locate them in a radically different topology. For the liberal center, radical left and right are the two forms of appearance of the same totalitarian excess. Although the liberal center likes to cheat here. You know that now, a couple of days ago, the European Parliament adopted a disgusting resolution condemning uh, communism and Nazism as two versions of the same, basically equalizing them. But did you notice a disgusting asymmetry? They should have done one of the two things, I claim. If they were to be even, I'm measuring now by their own standards, honest liberals either condemn the entire movement and say communism and fascism are the same crime or limit themselves to the evil extreme in both cases and to say, I don't know, Stalinism and Nazism are. No, they have chosen the universal term for the left, communism, and the selective for the right, only Nazism, which means, of course, the space is open for the favorable sport of uh, exercise hobby of the right liberal historians today to demonstrate how this soft Latino fascism, Mussolini, Salazar, Franco, isn't so bad at all, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, so that's for the right, or for the liberal center. While for the left, the only true alternative is the one between itself and the liberal mainstream, while the populist radical right is nothing but the symptom of the liberalism's inability to deal with the leftist threat. So when we hear today a politician or an ideologist offering us a choice between liberal freedom and fundamentalist oppression and triumphantly asking us this rhetorical question, but do you want women to be excluded from public life do you want every critic, criticism or making fun of religion to be punished by death and so on? 
What should make us suspicious is the very self-evidence of the answer. Of course, we don't want this. The problem is that such simplistic liberal universalism long ago lost its innocence. This is why for a true leftist, the conflict between liberal permissiveness and fundamentalism is ultimately a false conflict. The two opposites form a vicious cycle of two poles presupposing generating each other. One should accomplish here a Hegelian step back and put in question the very measure from which fundamentalism appears in all its horror. What Horkheimer of Frankfurt School had said long ago should also be applied to today's fundamentalism. He said, as you know, that those who don't want to talk about uh, fascism should also keep silent about, uh, uh, about uh, uh, sorry, that those who don't want to talk critically about capitalism should also keep silent about fascism. We should repeat this today. Those who do not want to talk critically about liberal democracy and its noble principles should also keep quiet about religious fundamentalism. How then, so this is my point. And now just, if you permit me a provocative conclusion, my point is that the ABC, and this is connected to what Badiou was developing yesterday as this paraconsistency and so on, that uh, we are caught in a certain antagonism that imposes itself as the principal antagonism today, the free West against fundamentalism. The first thing to do is to render problematic this antagonism itself, to perceive it as a false antagonism. In the sense of, although I agree, sometimes strategically we should support liberals here and there, but basically we should see that this is a false struggle. That, to cut a long story short, that uh, in fighting fundamentalism, liberalism is not fighting its opponent, it's fighting its own outgrowth. That the only thing that can save what is worth saving Liberalism itself is a more radical left. Now, just look, empirical proof. I'm close to the end. Uh, 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 what are the consequences of this? Now I will try to conclude with a little bit more unpleasant consequence. I will try to present you with a clear empirical example of how this step out of the two of the false opposition to see beneath the false opposition the true opposition, let me begin with, you will think it has nothing to do with what I was talking. It is directly linked. The, uh, do you know what is the third wave? No, no, nothing to do with those futurists. We are entering a new era. It's not 2012, we will all die, but humanity will be reborn. The, no, it is the social experiment made by a history teacher, teacher called Ron Jones at uh, Caberly High School in Palo Alto, California in 1967. It's the standard liberal experiment. And again, this was a triumph. He wrote later a book. Then, this, uh, then uh, it was made a TV movie. It was even recently, I think, made a version in Germany here. I radically disagree with this experiment. Why? What did he do? In order to explain to his students how the German populace could claim ignorance of the Holocaust, you know, this eternal question, how could big good Germans do what they did? 
Jones started in his class a movement, he called it the third way, and convinced his students that the movement is to, meant to eliminate democracy. He emphasized this main point of the movement in its motto, strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action, strength through pride. On the fourth day, however, Jones decided to terminate the experiment which was slipping out of his control. He discovered that students became increasingly involved in the project and their discipline and loyalty were becoming breathtaking. Like some of them even denounced to Jones, to Jones their peers whom they suspected of not really believing in the projects and so on and so on. So Jones ordered students on the fourth day to attend a rally at noon next day, where instead of a televised address of their leader, the students were presented, confronted by an empty screen. And then after a couple of minutes of waiting, Jones announced that they have been part of an experiment in fascism and that they all willingly created a sense of discipline superiority, which German citizens displayed in the period of Nazi Germany. I think this is a liberal fake, a false lying experiment. Why? As expected, liberals were fascinated by the third way, discerning in it the deep Lord of the Flies, I'm referring to William Golding's novel, insight into how, you know, liberals like this topic. Beneath the civilized surface, we are all potentially fascist beasts. The barbarian beast is lurking in all of us, awaiting its opportunity. But what if we shift the perspective a little bit and conceive the authoritarian personality as the repressed obverse of the liberal open personality itself? I want to refer here to the well-known legendary study by Adorno and others, you may have heard about it, uh, on so-called authoritarian personality. The features of authoritarian personality, which Adorno tried to then identify through sociological uh, investigations and so on, are clearly opposed to the standard figure of open democratic personality. You know, Adorno simply thought, what is democratic personality? Open to debate, okay, so the other is dogmatic, tolerant, intolerant, and so on and so on. But I think at some point, liberal critics of Adorno were right. When they pointed as to one big hole in entire book. Adorno doesn't make it clear what is the underlying point of his experiment. His experiment, of course, as expected, demonstrated that many of us are potentially fascists, blah, 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 and so on. Uh, the problem, what, the, what Adorno didn't want to decide is the simple dilemma. Are we dealing, when we talk about these two types of personality, let's call it Authoritarian personality and whatever you want to call the opposite, open democratic personality. Are these simply to be opposed as good versus bad? So we simply should fight against one, support the other, or is the bad one the symptom of the good one? So that the solution is not simply fight the bad one for the good one, but determine, analyze how the good one itself through its inconsistency, generates the bad one. To put it bluntly, how authoritarian personality is the result, outcome of the very 
liberal universe. It's typical that Habermas makes this step. And here, I think he regresses from Adorno, who is more radical. Adorno always had this suspicion that you cannot simply oppose good democratic openness towards the bad totalitarian temptation that they form a totality. While again, the whole point of Habermas, he would have said, yes, the persistence of authoritarian personality uh, demonstrates how, uh, demonstrates how, uh, how, uh, how, uh, how, uh, how uh, the democratic process is an unfinished project. We should fight more and more for, uh, for liberal democracy, tolerance, and so on, and so on. But uh, again, I think that the reluctance of Adorno to do this, he did not, that's his greatness, that he did not want to make this step and to say, obviously, if authoritarian personality is bad, then its opposite must be must be good. And this brings us to what I think is false in this uh, uh, liberal enthusiasm for the third wave phenomenon. Its function is to assert the struggle of liberal openness against totalitarian closure as our fundamental struggle and thus to obliterate their mutual complicity. That is to say the fact that totalitarianism, so-called, is the return of the repressed of liberalism itself. This obliteration also enables us to condense fascism and communism into one and the same anti-liberal totalitarian figure, and thus to block the search for a third option, not third in the compromise sense, but for the true alternative. Let's call it naively a personality structure of a subject engaged in a radical emancipatory struggle, a subject who is not a liberal tolerant subject, but also definitely not a, a fascist authoritarian personality. A subject who, and now comes my maybe provocation, but you are used from everything from me, nothing provokes people today. Uh, my temptation was this one. My God, sorry to tell you, what is wrong about this terrible motto? Strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action, strength to pride. Sorry, I fully accept this as a motto. What is bad about it? Strength to discipline. Of course, if we are poor, screwed up, we must be disciplined. Strength to community. Of course, we must hold together. Strength to action. Of course, strength to pride. Of course, we should be pride of our struggle. We can do this and yet remain engaged in a radical egalitarian emancipatory struggle. What a liberal can do apropos such a subject is either dismiss it as another version of the authoritarian personality or this is the game they like to play, liberal critics, to claim that there is contradiction in the left, that while their task is egalitarian, the very mode they approach it is authoritarian. In both cases, the specificity of the subject of, let's call it, radical emancipatory struggle is invisible. Here, I would like to conclude with a quote from Badiou, where he makes the same point. Namely, the, it's, the idea is that in today's era of hedonist permissivity as the ruling ideology, I think the time is coming for the left to reappropriate discipline, the spirit of sacrifice, and so on. There is nothing inherently fascist about these values. Or a quote from Badiou. Uh, this is the secret, but you, it's a little bit too radical for his public image. He said this in an interview in LA, but I'm the evil guy 
this is everything is in my black book. Uh, he says, we need a popular discipline. I would even say that those who have nothing have only their discipline. The poor, those with no financial or military means, those with no power, all they have is their discipline, their capacity to act together. This discipline is already a form of organization. And to conclude, because there were some proto-fascist rumors that I am against poetry, I claim that true poetry also requires great discipline. No wonder that three of the greatest poets of the 20th century, more precisely a writer and two poets, were bank officers and insurance agents, Kafka, T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens. They needed the discipline of dealing with money, not only as a counterpoint to poetic license, but as a means to install order in the flow of this stupid poetic inspiration. The art of poetry is a constant struggle against its own source. The art, proper art of poetry consists in the way one dance the free flow of poetic inspiration. This is why in compliance with the banking metaphor, I think there is nothing cheaply liberating in getting message of a poem. If you really get a poem, it's more like a message you get from tax authorities. You know, oh, you have to pay this debt and so on and so on. Why? It hurts. Because poetry is truth and truth hurts. Thank you very much. <laughs>